0: Today in the garage, we have Leo Rusomano and Vanessa McDonnell. Leo Rusomano is a criminal defense lawyer in Ottawa. He has been a member of the Board of Directors for the Criminal Lawyers Association as the Ottawa Director and Co-Chair of the Legislation Committee and Vice President of the Criminal Defense Council Association of Ottawa. He also teaches at the University of Ottawa, including First Year Criminal Law and the Law of Homicide. Vanessa McDonnell is an Associate Professor at the University of Ottawa Faculty of Law Common Law Section and Co-Director of the U Ottawa Public Law Center. She researches in the areas of Canadian constitutional law, constitutional theory, comparative constitutional law, and criminal law. In 2019, she was selected for membership in the Global Young Academy. Vanessa is a graduate of the University of Toronto Faculty of Law and Harvard Law School where she received her LLM. She is currently pursuing doctoral studies at McGill University. Between 2007 and 2008, she served as law clerk to Justice Louis Charron at the Supreme Court of Canada. Vanessa teaches criminal law, evidence, constitutional law, comparative law, comparative constitutional law, administrative law, a seminar on the Supreme Court of Canada, and a graduate course on the impact of Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms on criminal law and procedure. Whether you're driving your Nissan Rogue, strumming your acoustic fender, or writing a submission, step into the garage, listen to the experts, and get it too. Leo, Vanessa, I can't thank you enough
1: for joining me in the garage today. Hey Marco, what's up? Thanks for having us.
2: Thanks Marco.
0: It's been uh, a long time coming. We've tried to organize this for since season two of the Law Garage and we finally uh, were able to make it come to fruition. So thanks for being here. You guys are coming in via Zoom from Ottawa today. So if there's any um, delays or hiccups, just let me know, okay? Sounds good. So I want to get started with, first of all, we'll start with you, Vanessa, because how did you end up developing an interest in criminal law through your academics? So
2: how did I end up in the garage, basically? Exactly.
0: <laughs> exactly.
2: Um, yeah, so, well, I have to say, so so both Leo and I have known Marco, Uh for about twenty years, we met in first year law at U Ottawa, um, and certainly at that time, I don't think I ever thought that I would be interested in in criminal law. Um, but uh, I kind of, you know, I I went through law school. I ended up uh, articling at a Bay Street firm, and then ended up in Ottawa doing my clerkship and. Uh, because I was clerking for Justice Sharon, I ended up working on a lot of criminal cases. And uh, that period happened to coincide with uh, when I started dating Leo. (laughs) And uh, I think that I just, uh, you know, Leo was practicing criminal law at the time I was working on criminal cases. And it sort of felt like a whole new world opened up to me, I realized I was I was really interested in in criminal issues, I could see from the work that Leo was doing that I probably wasn't uh, interested in practicing, um, you know, in any kind of serious way, but that I was really interested in in the issues. And so um, when I pursued my LLM, I took some courses in criminal law. And then when I um, accepted my first job in academia at UNB and then later at U Ottawa, Uh, I was teaching criminal law and evidence and, and I've been, you know, researching those issues ever since. So um, in some ways, I think it was a, I was a late bloomer when it came to figuring out that I was interested in criminal law um, and evidence issues. But um, yeah, it's, it's just such an incredibly, you know, interesting and an important area of the law. And I mean, I see it from the, the academic perspective, you guys see it from, uh, from the practical perspective, I think there's really value to both. And, and, you know, maybe we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that today.
0: I hope so. I hope we get into that. Leo, tell us, uh, I know a little bit about your trajectory, because pretty much the same trajectory as mine, but uh, if you want to <laughs> share it a little bit with our audience.
1: Yeah, you and I and a few others were, I guess, um, some of the people most interested in criminal law, at U of O in those early days. But um
2: you guys started, started in the
1: basement. We did, And yeah. now you're in the garage. <laughs>
0: so, <laughs> we're working our way up from the cantina.
1: So, um, well, I mean, I had a pretty, you know, I think uh, common experience as many do in undergrad. I was in poli-sci and economics at McMaster. I was really into international relations and I wanted to pursue graduate studies in um, international politics. I thought I wanted to work for foreign affairs. I was really into um, international human rights. And Carleton University has a very uh, well-regarded international politics master's uh, program uh, called the Norm Patterson School of International Affairs. So I was gearing up to apply for that. And uh, my father, uh, sort of a traditional uh, person who applied a lot of pressure in my life to do well in academics and whatnot, my dad was like You know, there's a combined um, LLB MA at U of O and Carleton. So you could do your master's in international politics and your law degree at the same time. So just study for the LSAT and take the LSAT and see how it goes. And that's what I did. I I took the LSAT um, and uh, got into law school and I um, did this combined program thinking the entire time as I was gearing up to come to Ottawa, coming from the GTA, that it was just going to be like a law degree in my back pocket just in case and that I was really going to end up in, you know, foreign affairs Canada or something. And then and then first year hit and uh I had criminal law and constitutional law and I just felt like it was like a smack upside the head. Like I was just I was into nothing else after that point. I was like I want to be a criminal trial lawyer and I found um I found an internship um, in uh, at, Weber, at what was then called Weber Schrader uh, in my first year, and just never looked back from there.
0: It's interesting that um, you know the the immigrant experience was similar for me with my father and my interest in political science, in that uh, not so gracefully. What are you going to do with politics? Be a politician. <laughs> Yeah, and so you need a profession. You need a profession, right? And so you know, because I think our parents somehow looked at you know going to school as a means to a better career, as opposed to maybe what they had gone through. So for them to support us in academics was so that we could make a better living than they could make. And it wasn't just, even though we had an interest, I had a huge interest in um, constitutional politics when i was an undergrad and then it the seamless transition into criminal law is that the charter was my interest in undergrad and obviously it's the biggest section of criminal law i mean the biggest section of the charter is criminal related and um i don't know vanessa what do you do with that or
2: well i mean i guess you know what i'd say is i often um you know we'll have students come to my office and say I want to pursue a career in constitutional law um you know like what what's your advice on on how you do that and um you know I think it's pretty clear that um the lawyers who have the most experience litigating constitutional issues are criminal lawyers right it's just baked into um the criminal trial process now and 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 the pretrial process so um yeah I think um in fact I think that's Leo how you um how you sort of got into criminal law was be- as well because of your your interest in in constitutional law
1: for sure yeah I mean we were in the same uh all three of us were in the same first year constitutional law class with Professor Mende- Mendez and uh the stuff on the charter I uh, translated immediately to criminal law and then when we were in Our criminal law class, um, talking about the charter, it was that part of it that really, really, you know, uh, resonated with me. And it just became uh, like it's hard to even look back on that since it was like 20 years ago. But that in my head, it was just like became very sequential, like, okay, I want to be a criminal defense lawyer. There was really no other calculus. Like I didn't want to be a crown at the time. Because, well, I want to uphold rights. I don't want to like oppose the charter application. I want to bring the charter application. Right. So I want to challenge the legislation, not try to uh, uphold it. So, um, you know, that's how that's how it played out for me and and was the primary sort of vector for my uh, my interest in criminal law.
0: How's that charter litigation going for you these days? Well,
1: I don't, you know, as as we've been discussing this, I was kind of wondering whether it was fortuitously or just uh, not coincidental at all that I have a large part of my practice involves charter litigation, like a massive, massive part. And I think some of it was, in a way, uh, fortune on my part in that I had a few early cases involving um, Ottawa police uh, physically assaulting inmates at the cell block that became very notorious here and I kind of made a bit of a name for myself early on with charter cases and it's just kind of snowballed over time and now you know 14 years later uh still a massive part of my practice so Mm -hmm. it's definitely uh it's going well I mean the the charter as you know um there's there's a lot of wins. There's a lot of losses too. You know whether it's at the at the right stage or at the twenty four two stage. It uh, feels like a loss even if you've if you've won the first stage and lost the second stage. So sometimes
0: it feels like a loss even if you win at both stages because Vanessa, you agree with that? You, you understand what yeah, I'm getting well, at? Yeah.
2: I mean, I and I don't want to like. I'm not going to narrate you know, Leo's, Leo's career here, (laughs) but as, as probably the closest observer of Leo's career, um, I will say that I think early on, Leo, you figured out, um, you know, we've talked a little bit about this because Leo and I have, have done a couple of cases together, not many, but we have collaborated occasionally. And, um, you know, I think one of the things Leo figured out early on is um of course the arguments are important but but you know what's also important is the evidentiary foundation um for the the motion and i think you figured out early on that you know through some of these early cases like you know what are the materials you need to ask for what sort of disclosure specific disclosure mm-hmm. might help support a, a case and so i think you know early on you were asking for cell block video for example as a matter of routine in cases you are asking for this stuff and we're getting it
1: the radio communications um, yeah
2: too. radio communications these kinds of things that i don't think are you know necessarily asked for routinely but they're often pretty revealing right and sometimes you know depending on what they say the case is over before it even starts or you know depending on what the video shows so um I think those early cases were pretty formative, not only in terms of like, you know, honing your skills in making the legal arguments, but understanding like what are the levers that you can, sure. you can pull.
1: For sure. And, and I, actually, it was funny, I was listening to Bottomley on your podcast. Uh, a few days ago, uh, I was listening a few days ago and I heard him talking about the, the cruiser cam and I was like, oh my God, if only we had that on the cruisers here in Ottawa. <laughs> more, more cameras, more mics, you know what I mean? But uh, yeah, we do what we can with what we have here. But uh, I think the early on the disclosure was a huge part of it. And some of those early cell block cases that I was involved in in Ottawa, which is now going back to like 2010, I think, somewhere around there. Um they didn't they did not routinely um record and the the quality of the video wasn't so great but after those cases and there was it was like national news when it first happened um they then got a new video system uh high definition video system and audio as a result of the cases that i was involved in as well as other members of my firm at the time um so that became something that was more routine but at the time it wasn't really it wasn't really that commonplace.
0: I just want to pick up on uh, Vanessa, indicated that at times you guys uh, collaborated on cases. Is there any specific example you want to discuss? Yeah, I mean... Is <laughs> that that's a, a, a sore topic? topic? I, I hope that's not a sore
2: sort topic. Not, no, no,
1: it's no. not, it's <laughs> not. No,
2: I mean, we've we've collaborated on a number of things. Like we've, you know, we've now, we've written op-eds together. We've written articles we've you know we have two two kids um (laughs) our most successful collaboration other than the children of course um is is probably these cases that we worked on um together and uh you know it's tricky we did kind of a string i think of three cases about five years ago um and it's just really hard um you know i already have a couple of jobs and like adding um, part-time uh, lawyer to to those is is really challenging. Um, but like occasionally, Leo will have an issue come up that relates directly to some of the research that I've done in the past. And so um, we did a few mandatory minimum um, applications together. Challenges, yeah. Challenges, yeah. And then we also um, we worked on this this case where we brought a constitutional challenge to um, the juror selection process in Ontario. And um, yeah, I mean, those were really, um, I think, like, really um, a great experience for both of us in terms of, um, you know, me understanding how these issues kind of um, operate in a very concrete context. and, And, you know, I think Leo and I being able to kind of I hope provide, you know, a really unique form of representation by virtue of the fact that we see the same issues from, you know, somewhat different standpoints, right? Like when you take the kind of high level academic view, and you bring it together with that kind of real deep practical knowledge of the system. Um, sometimes you can get somewhere that's, that's pretty, pretty cool. So um yeah I don't know what you want to say about that leo but... well
1: that case the case that we were involved in bringing that challenge for was a uh a first degree murder case um and we brought a challenge based on the uh jury roles um and how they were based at the time on municipal uh assessment database so um municipal property assessment database um and I think we were able to show, although at the end, the, the application itself was dismissed, uh, but we can deal with that later in terms of, you know, biggest disappointments. But um, <laughs> the, uh, the, the, I think that the data that we were able to find, which was data that was obtained um, in a research project by a, a judge of the Superior Court at the time who looked at data in Ottawa from jury selection uh, and found that in the neighborhoods in which you have the highest rates of home ownership. Uh, and the higher income, and then there's obviously a sort of cascading effect in terms of um, racial disparities, uh, socioeconomic disparities. So you had the high income, high home ownership neighborhoods in which jurors were overwhelmingly drawn from those neighborhoods, and much less so from those neighborhoods that had lower income housing, uh, more uh, racial, um, more uh, I, I guess, racial diversity and uh, lower uh, average income. And so we we mounted a challenge on that basis. And um, ultimately, um, I think we were able to establish a strong evidentiary foundation for it, but the application was dismissed and our client ended up resolving for uh, a manslaughter. And so our hope at the time uh, was that we would be able to continue litigating that issue. Um, but because of the resolution in place uh, and the other two accused who were differently situated vis-a-vis the evidence ended up going to trial and they were both acquitted um, by a jury, uh, ironically. (laughs) Um, So um, there was no real avenue for appeal there, Um, but it was something that, you know, we got to call expert evidence, we got to, you know, subpoena some high level functionaries within the sort of uh, ministry apparatus in terms of devising the uh, the jury role. Um, and I think we got to put together quite a, a really sophisticated um, package in terms of our submissions. And I was really just extremely proud of our work. Uh, sometimes I think you have to separate the result with the quality of the work that you do um and i was just really proud of of us in doing that and i also kind of on a side note really enjoyed having vanessa there with me because i felt like finally she got to see like all of the the rancor and the stress and the you know bs that you have to deal with from time to time in these like heated battles that are a a part just like a everyday part of the adversarial system except this was you know this was a first-degree murder case this was a constitutional challenge where you know the the crown wasn't like was was fighting tooth and nail uh to get the result that they wanted so i really sort of enjoyed having somebody in the foxhole with me because sometimes it can get pretty lonely in the foxhole by yourself
0: so i just want to understand um as a pre-trial application did you have to start with like a challenge to the array under 629 of the criminal code or is it, was it already known to you or did you have information that would lead to the challenging, the constitutionality of how. Basically.
2: Yeah. I mean, basically we were challenging the way that the jury role was compiled. Um, how did
0: you know the, about that? How did you know the way it was compiled is what I'm getting at.
2: So we um, I'd done a bunch of research on on the jury selection process in Ontario. And um, probably one or two years before we brought this case, um, there had been an independent review conducted by Justice Iacobucci in Ontario that had showed that the way that jurors were selected in ontario disproportionately excluded indigenous people living on reserve and so i had done some work on that issue i had written a paper and as i got into the research it became clear that um obviously this this uh, practice or this um what it was that that justice Yakabuchi had identified he clearly this this was a problem um, and that there were also a number of other sort of structural problems with the way that that juries were selected so um, just as a it, it seemed pretty clear at a high level that the process that was in place for selecting jurors more or less guaranteed that you know because you're drawing those um, lists from municipal property assessment um lists, that that those lists are going to favor homeowners, right? So people who rent, um, they occasionally you can find, you know, there are ways for those people to get on to a jury list. But the reality is that those lists tend to favor homeowners. And people who are homeowners tend to, you know, have particular, they, they come from a particular socioeconomic class, they, you know, it, all these kinds of things. So um, at the same time, we then found out that this report had been prepared by a judge of the superior court, um, and that she had had access to data from Ottawa, and that her she had taken a study leave um, to investigate jury representativeness issues in Ottawa, and the report that she had produced um, demonstrated. That, you know, not just as a theoretical matter, the selection process was, you know, disproportionately selecting sort of high income property owning white folks, um, but that like the actual data substantiated that. And and she had done, she had retained the, um, a geographer who had sort of like plotted all of this on a map. Um, So there was like direct evidence about this judicial district. And those problems and so um you know we felt this was obviously a significant issue for Leo's client um it was a, a, an issue for every person seeking or or you know uh, subject to a jury trial in Ottawa and it was also pretty clear that this was a problem for every jury trial in the province um and so you know it was at that time that we decided okay like we need to pull this together all of this information together that we have um and we need and to... we had
1: no funding sorry oh, we had no you. funding we yeah had no funding we did it entirely um, you know, yeah. know.
2: that we had to kind of like that we were going to bring this application and uh and so yeah we had we decided you know there were all these questions like how do you get all this evidence before the court we decided we needed to call an expert in jury selection who we could lead all of these There, were, there's a whole body of of um academic research that shows that jury selection processes can be tainted in various ways so we decided you know we need to lead all of that through an expert who can take the judge through all of that academic literature we you know we we subpoenaed the someone from the municipal property assessment yeah. corporation like we just yeah. we really kind of we thought
1: subpoena the sheriff
2: yeah the sheriff that's
1: <laughs> and the person from mpac yeah
2: yeah, i mean it was um because it was really you know we felt the evidence was all there but it had to get before the court and we had to make sure we got it before the court in a way that the crown um couldn't impeach in any meaningful way right because you know one of the issues in in these cases specifically you know when you're making arguments i think about um about race or about you know some sort of like structural unfairness in the system Um, you need to make sure you've got the evidence there, right? Like, so in the context of of challenging the jury selection process, you've got a judge who's presided over jury trials for decades, right? And like, you know, who generally believes that jury trials are fair and that the way that juries are selected is fair. So if you're going to rock his world with your legal argument, you better make sure you have some evidence there to back it up, right? So we put a ton of time into that, and it was a huge disappointment. Yeah, I think um, for our client when we were unsuccessful, um, I will say they did change the the system by which juries are selected in the province. You know, they they moved like the
1: in the way we were saying it should be changed. To yeah, the, the
2: province moved to. A process that you know now they they select juries using health card information instead of property assessment information that's obviously like way more comprehensive Um, but there was an article in the national post in the last week that there's like you know another huge problem with um, how juries are selected they've accidentally left off like a whole group of people and, and defense lawyers and, and I guess lawyers throughout the province have just been notified of this.
0: We got um, that on, uh, actually we got that on July, yeah. July 5th, 2020, okay. which is interesting because as you're, as you're talking about this, um, you know, I didn't know section 629 just off the top of my head as much as it may sound and <laughs> it's because I, it's recent, very impressive. I recently, I recently, um, looked into this specific issue pursuant to that um, issue that arose from the sheriff, uh, from the letter that we have, that they just effectively miscalculated the... It sounds like they miscalculated the dates from which to start uh, subpoenaing jurors. And so they missed an entire section of of jurors who were 18 or turning 18 years old as or well as
1: served on juries in the past. Right.
0: And as well as people who would served on juries who were now real or not served on juries, but had been subpoenaed within the last three years and, and came back. Uh, and
1: wrongfully included people who were not, should not have been eligible because they had been.
0: That's right. Well, they asked them to self, I- to self identify on that issue. So it just seems like a very, and when I saw that and I go, I'm looking into this issue cause I, you know, um, I just finished two jury cases and I have one coming up and I'm thinking, is there anything here right. for my clients as both are still um, awaiting the sentences? So right. it doesn't seem like there is, I mean, short of that embarking on uh, that type of application that you had to launch, doesn't seem like there's going to be any real remedy here. Uh, for I will mistakes. say,
2: and I will say, Marco, that the the relevant provisions of the code have also been amended since leo and i brought this application right so um there were those changes um that were that were enacted that were then um challenged unsuccessfully in the the Chauhan case um and so the process is slightly different now and i think i do think that um Judges have maybe a wider jurisdiction now than they did before um, to make rulings about, you know, about the whether a jury is properly constituted and, and that sort of thing. But
1: what uh, what's your
0: thought, either of you on on this Chuhan decision and the government's decision to take
1: away the preemptory? You trying to start a fight? I know. You trying to start a fight with us, Marco? We're, We're or on like...
2: opposite sides of this issue. <laughs> I didn't know.
0: I didn't know. I just, I, I, I'd like to hear, I'd like to hear um, from both sides then, because then and then I'll chime in and tell you who's the winner.
2: Oh, good. Okay. All right. Well, go, so I, go ahead, I testi- Yeah. So I testified um, before either the House committee or the Senate committee. I can't recall which, when the legislation was before parliament, um, Because actually, I thought that it was a good thing that the peremptory challenges were removed. Um, And and I can see from Marco's face (laughs) and the fact that he just picked up his drink that (laughs) he's preparing his rebuttal. I think I'm the loser here. Um, But, you know, I think there is all sorts of evidence. I think this is like the theme of our conversation. There's all sorts of evidence that um, you know, and a lot of it comes from the US, but there's all sorts of evidence that the crown the, the crowns use peremptory challenges to dismiss racialized jurors from juries um, in cases where you have a racialized accused. Um, so there's evidence that these challenges are exercised in a racially discriminatory manner. Um, And like, there's basically, you know, in Canada, there's, there's, there's basically no redress for that, right? Because you don't have to provide a reason uh, why you're dismissing a a, a juror. And so my view was, um, on the whole, those challenges don't benefit uh, racialized accused, they are, they're basically, you know, used as weapons against them. Um now I know that that's not I you know I I guess you know before the Supreme Court there were lots of interveners that intervened from um organizations that do work you know for and on behalf of um racialized communities that argued against the elimination of those challenges argued against the constitutionality of that elimination um you know, I thought as a policy matter, it was a good policy decision. And I certainly thought it was constitutional, um, which is what the Supreme Court concluded. Um I think, you know, there there's perhaps in light of those, you know, the those interventions, there's a wider scope for discussing whether that's a good, you know, I think there's a real question about whether this is a good policy decision i I don't think that the there was a particularly strong argument for saying that those changes were unconstitutional particularly since they involved the repeal of legislation right um, um so yeah I mean I think policy debate yes I didn't think the constitutional arguments against the abolition of peremptories was was particularly strong
0: I mean i I, I agree with you i'm not actually on the record agreeing with that I, I don't see anything unconstitutional about the
2: oh phew okay
0: no that i, I will mean say... I, I, that on the constitutional issue i don't yes
2: see. and i think you know here's the thing that makes this hard you know um to the extent that it's hard i think the idea is you know there are equality interests on both sides right mm-hmm. so the question is in a context where these peremptory challenges can be used in a racially discriminatory manner but also accused persons feel that you know having access to them might somehow result in a fairer trial you know i think there um again like there it's not that there are just you know equality considerations on one side i think really on on both sides of the argument there are those those con, uh considerations um
1: can can I just say sure. that I think Vanessa just made an excellent case for removing the Crown's peremptory challenges. <laughs>
2: I was thinking the same thing.
1: Like yes. I was like yeah, why didn't the government that. just strike I'm the- all for that? <laughs> I don't have a problem with that. I just I want can't, mine. I can't
2: find like an asymmetrical <laughs> an asymmetrical peremptory. Yeah, I could get behind that, Leo.
1: I'll say this. Why I don't do you, want to you, debate this.
2: Suggest that earlier. I don't know. It's a little late in the day now.
1: <laughs> I um I um I think that there is a um a certain um fairness to allowing the accused to play a role in determining the composition of his or her jury and that is the historical reason um why for centuries a person was entitled to use peremptories to determine the makeup of their own jury who would be deciding their fate. I also feel like it's a bit of a fiction that juries are drawn or that the jury role is drawn from a like broad cross-section of society. Anyone who practices in Ottawa knows that you get civil servants and retired civil servants and then more civil servants And that part of the reason for that is a lot of jurors who are working in the private sector, for example, or don't work in government have to exclude by reason of economic hardship. And so I think it's a bit of a, I think, I think there's a certain unfairness there in terms of the composition of the jury already. So So the last thing I would say is I would like, I one of the things I believe in like hardcore is the adversarial system. Like, just let me, if you're going to get, if you're going to let the crown use their peremptories, I will use mine better. I will do more research into the background of the prospective jurors. I will search more. I will, you know, um, work harder. And that is one of my core beliefs about the system is that in order for it to work, I have to be well-equipped and I have to outwork. Um, The other side and so that is what sort of my fallback in terms of using the peremptories i back when peremptories existed i researched every single one of those and when i showed up for jury selection i had three different highlights you know for the ones i i knew i didn't want the ones i knew i wanted and the ones that i was kind of wishy-washy about
2: okay but so so are you are you saying though like that's a that's a policy you're i think it's it's a very good argument that you know there is something really important about the accused being part of the jury selection process, but I don't think you're not saying that, that that's constitutionally required for, for a fair trial. I'm not going to get
1: into a like mudslinging match about the constitution with you about (laughs) this, but I think it's good policy. And I think it's fair. I just think it's more fair than to have the accused have to take the first 12 people or 14 or whatever and call it a day, you, I think you've
2: convinced me actually,
1: well, I, oh my goodness, <laughs> you know, are we
2: done here let's end this let's end this before we
0: I'll let Leo, Leo can leave on a high note <laughs> um, there's a couple things though like this this is an issue that is personal, obviously to me as well, because you know I, I feel I've been in the situation now where I can honestly look at my client's eyes and he just sits there as a potted plant as a jury selected yeah. to decide his fate. And he has absolutely zero say in that yeah. matter. So it does hurt a little bit from that perspective. And I feel that a lot of and the debate around this policy had to do with race. But as Leo oh, just, yeah. it, uh, as Leo just indicated in his example, I mean, it's a fiction to think that, for instance, if, if, you have a hundred people in your pool and it was divided equally by race, then the preemptory challenge wouldn't matter. That's not because, because you only get 12, right? So you can't, you can't challenge everybody. The reason why it has has any weight at all is because, you know, if you have 12 people of the same ethnic background of your client coming up a, that's a shock. And if they come up so frequently that the crown would challenge them all on that basis, then they would be out of challenges. That never happens. There's so far and few between, I say, to make a representative jury that it's really just a fiction, number one. But then also, what it's done for us, and I've noticed having done now um, three post Chuhan jury selections and one pre Chuhan Superior Court, uh, Supreme Court, but post amendments jury selection. Is that the there's no power really to challenge those jurors who come with a list of excuses, who the judge just knocks out one out of the next? There's no power to challenge the banker who's gonna come and sit on a bank robbery case. There's no power to challenge, you know, somebody from the community or the neighborhood from where the offense took place. There are some offense-based questions that the judges have put in there. If they offer that questionnaire, right. like some judges do a questionnaire to the panel, mm-hmm. that's offense-based. But that's the extent of it. Yeah. So it it focused a lot on this race issue, which is a main issue. But there's so many other reasons why the preemptory challenges were important to us. Yeah. And you know, I I got fleet feet. Um, I got some kickback in the media by other counsel who say, well, they didn't say, well, you know, Shara can decide by looking at somebody for 30 seconds, whether they're going to be a good juror. That's not the point. It's, I don't, it's not because I'm just judging them based on that, but you know, yeah, it's fictional. It's a gut instinct, but you know, G Arthur Martin put a lot of emphasis on it. He won 60 murder cases like, and he put a lot of emphasis on his ability to select jurors that he thought would be good. And to the extent that we follow a lineage of, of practicing lawyers to that effect, I mean, it's something that was part of our thing to do. And I agree with Leo. It's something that goes towards our decision-making and our defenses. It's, we know what the case is going to entail. We know what the defenses are going to be like. And we know right. which people may or may not look at it differently.
1: So It's not our jury anymore. It's not the client's jury anymore. It's the, it's the jury. No, it's right? frankly, it's,
0: honestly, it's frankly the judge's jury. So yeah. our client has select has elected to have a jury and now sometimes the, not. No, and now the and now the the, the Supreme Court and the, the government has said, fine, you want a jury, but the judge that you didn't want to judge your case, yeah. that's the person who's gonna pick the people who are gonna judge your yeah. case.
1: Or, so, or sometimes I don't I don't we don't we don't get a choice. And that's the other thing. Like the right to a trial by jury apparently doesn't include the right not to be tried by a jury for those offenses, right? So I think that's another area that's ripe for challenge because the case that decided that was actually a case out of Ottawa from like the mid mid 80s, you know, uh about about the right to have a judge alone trial on a on a homicide case.
2: So, I know Marco, we're not interviewing you, but so I have a question for you because I know um when these amendments were being proposed, I think you know, one of the things that Kent Roach was arguing at the time was that you know judges did have the power to dismiss jurors um you know in response to some of the types of like under the new legislation judges had the power to dismiss jurors who raised some of the types of concerns that you're identifying so like do you think that you could plausibly you know go before a judge and say i'm concerned you know even about the perception of um You know, a banker sitting on a bank robbery case. Um, You know, I'm concerned. Like, do you think that... Or a juror,
1: like, you know, you find out that a juror in an assault police case where you've elected trial by jury, uh, which I guess happens more in Toronto than it does in Ottawa, but you elect a jury... On assault police and you find out one of your jurors, you do a social media search and find out that they've attended Blue Lives Matter, uh, you know, events and wear a blue bracelet and are constantly singing the praises of the police.
0: So th- those are both. It's, it's interesting because um, these, these issues have arisen. I mean, the only argument that I advance is a challenge for cause under the criminal right. code. Um, right. and like, for instance, I've challenged, <laughs> I don't see how this would be, I got laughed at, but I was successful. I got challenged, um, somebody who worked for the ministry of the attorney of uh, the ministry of the attorney general. Right. And they said, well, on what basis? I was like, well, he works for the the people who are prosecuting my client. Right. And, you know, even the perception of that. And the judge said, was well, not that a little bit tenuous? And I said, well, maybe, but you know, they're just an admin staff, but I'm like, doesn't matter. And you know he kind of agreed. And at the end of the day, there's a, if there's pushback from the crown, the judge has to make that decision. I found that they're very reluctant to use the stand aside provisions. Just right. put them to the bottom of the list. Um, you have to make a strong, I think, objection uh, on the basis of of partiality as between right. the queen and the right. and, and um, the accused. And in some cases, you can do that, but judges are very um, decisive as yeah. being a judge and they'll say, well, you know, I, I think they'll be fine. I think they can... The The, the real... Chuhan basically says, um, you know, the judge can vet them out and come bring them back in and say, well, does this... Uh, are you right. going to be able to follow my instruction and are you going to be able to put any prejudice aside and judge this case? Uh, you know, and of course they're going to say, yes, yes, your honor, right. because they're standing there frozen like deer in headlights. And of course they're going to say that. So it, it, just, it it's little solace to the accused in those circumstances. Yeah. Um, and that's what it is. It's more, in my opinion, it's the symbolic idea that we could just say, no, we don't want this person, just for without any explanation. That was taken away from us. Um, and if we accept Vanessa's argument, it was taken away from us because of the behavior of the crown. Which is the you know, irony of it
2: now but now I'm I'm you know I'm recalling like
1: the Stanley case was the about Stanley the case Council. yeah,
2: so this is actually why this is a uh, this is an issue with Leo's suggestion of an asymmetric power was that in the in the Stanley case it was you know the argument was that it, that you know defense counsel because there it was like you know the white
1: yeah.
2: r- farmer or rancher who was on trial um who killed an indigenous mm-hmm. person but isn't that the um, irony ac- of it all? or was accused of and yes. and and the argument was that defense counsel was systematically um excluding indigenous jurors so i guess you know like it's in tricky. that one
1: case that's what happened right and that that result ushered in that part of bill c75 that did away with all this so it's
2: Yep. I think that but I mean obviously this is like also not a good outcome to yeah. the extent that I mean well for multiple reasons but you know one of which is that I mean juries also are supposed to represent the conscience of the community
0: right but wouldn't wouldn't that problem I always think about this wouldn't the problem in Stanley case be avoided if the panel was more balanced with indigenous? people like you can't ch- if, if you the power to challenge them all it was the yeah. problem it's like if you didn't have the power to challenge them all then it wouldn't matter
2: but you right. know I still think that you're not allowed to exercise a peremptory challenge in a racially discriminatory manner and there was at least anecdotal evidence I I believe that that yes, was what had happened that was the evidence so,
1: and I, I do agree there though but I feel as though that's more of a safety valve it's like council do have an obligation not to exercise their peremptories in a discriminatory manner. I don't think you should rely on racial stereotypes or any inappropriate stereotypes in exercising your peremptory challenges. In this case, I'm not asking to preserve a right to exercise peremptory challenges in a discriminatory manner right i want to exercise my peremptory challenges but not that way but
2: how do you structure a rule so as to as to prevent that
1: well i think i think in part you rely on the honor system in a way and and i guess that that obviously wasn't the case in terms of the stanley trial but but i I feel that a lot of lawyers are cognizant of the you know problems with racial stereotypes but i mean and- the
2: whole but i mean the crown has those same obligations they right do. but doesn't right? it go
0: back to the motion that you all brought in your case in the sense that if the if the panel itself is more representative you right. wouldn't even even if that behavior exists or occurs on a case here or there yeah. the, it would have zero effect on a more representative panel Because you're limited in your challenges. You got 12. There's
2: no question that there are compound effects here, right? It's like the the list is flawed, so the array is flawed, so the jury is flawed. Like it's flawed all the way down. Um, I still think it seems clear that without some kind of rule that takes that power away there is a risk that this power will be exercised in a way that is that's racially discriminatory and you know lots of lawyers with lots of ethical obligations do that
1: it was just a little hard to swallow i guess from a defense counsel's perspective when you've defended many many racialized people charged with murder who don't even have a choice to not have a jury no, that's who right. are tried by 12 I, white jurors. It exactly. is just a really tough pill to swallow. Well, and I think know? that,
2: you know, that was the argument that was made by several of the interveners. Yeah. So, yeah.
1: well, we've already convinced Vanessa, so we can move on to the next topic. I,
2: I, I feel like maybe <laughs> I need back. to, maybe I need to like sleep on it. Well, next it, question.
0: What's interesting though about this discussion is that, um, you know the different perspectives that we bring to the table is that you know Leo and I feel it when I say, and when I say feel the impact like we f- I feel the impact of a supreme court decision yes like i f- but you know
2: feel yes it. but marco you know as academics
0: yes i want to hear we
2: need we need your expertise and dare i say <laughs> that as practitioners you, you guys need our expertise, right? Because it's one thing to like, look at all this on paper. And like I said, there've been lots of studies done. So there's like pretty good evidence that there's a problem here. Um, but when you say, like, how can I stand with my client, my racialized client being tried, you know, by an all white jury and like, this is what like, this is what it looks like a lot of the time are we sure that these rules operate in that context academics have to confront that right like we don't live in a a fact-free decontextualized world like we need to know how those big principles apply to individuals I think the people who are struggling over this in the academy like want to make sure the system is fair And so when you and Leo say, well, hold on a second, you just took away one of the very few tools that I have to to try to make sure my client feels that they're getting a fair trial in a system that already feels stacked against them. Like, how can I not take that seriously, right? Like, this is is really important. Um, And so, you know, I think... I I think this is really important, and Leo and I like this is one of the top three conversations that we have.
0: (laughs) Well, you know, it's it's it's, it goes back, Vanessa, to what you said at the outset, which is, you know, it you require evidence, and sometimes the evidence is just not there. It's like no one is interviewing all these accused and sit, you know, lining them up and telling them about their experiences and say, look, we have. A hundred, you know, racialized accused telling them uh, and telling the, the government of their experiences of feeling unjust, uh, the injustice of not being able to select their juries. So we don't have that evidentiary basis. But as a practitioners, we, we, all we have is we feel the impact that it's had on our clients because right. we look at them, we have those conversations with them and we see it in their eyes. But at the same time, they have bigger fish to fry than you know, changing the scope of law in Canada Yeah. most of the time. So we have to focus on their imminent issues. True.
2: Well, and that's what matters, right? Like, I mean, when I teach first year criminal law, I mean, this is the foundation for everything we talk about is, you know, the rules, like, you know, what, what you need to learn about the rules is how they affect the people who are subject to them right, who are on the sharp end of those rules. So it doesn't really matter if I can write a paper and think I can tie this all up, you know, theoretically and, you know, put a little bow on it. What matters is whether your client is going to get a fair trial in court, right? And like what their experience of that process is like. So, I mean, I think this is really important. And I think, you know, where academics have some advantage is again like you guys you guys constantly have your you know your head underwater, right? like you have a busy practice, you're like running from one crisis to the next. Academics have the benefit of being able to take a step back. like hopefully they see those concrete realities but they can also sometimes take a step back and say, okay, like you know I'm seeing a theme here or there's a trend here or have you thought about this argument or you know why is that argument not being made it seems to me like that could work um i think like i think there are just there aren't really those same moments for for sort of sober reflection um it's just not it's it's a lot harder not that you you know you all have like your your brilliant moments um but i think sometimes it actually helps to have someone who can sort of see in a way that is, you know, slightly removed from the next emergency. Um, you know, so.
0: We should all, we should all marry professors in criminal law. Precisely. I mean, this is. (laughs) Well, that's, that's what I was getting. I I don't mean to be facetious, but I, I agree with you. It'd be nice to have that sober, sober second thought in my everyday life. Um, (laughs) <laughs> but is is it available to us? Is it available to us? I I don't
1: it's there. I,
0: it's tell there. me, tell me where it's, the intersection occurs, Leo. Tell me.
1: Uh well, I mean, I think that we've both benefited each other just in terms of uh you know um being able to impart to Vanessa some of the practical realities of you know um representing someone accused with an offense. And I've benefited by virtue of knowing what her um, what her research areas are in criminal law. Like, I, I I'll give you an example. Like, and it's almost embarrassing to note, but like as a practitioner, I didn't really have my head wrapped around um, common law police powers and how potentially problematic they were. Like, I just thought of like, okay, well, there's some police powers that are derived by statute and others by common law, and I'm sure that in law school we covered this. But as a practitioner, like, you know, between five and eight years in, I wasn't really thinking too much about that. And then Vanessa started writing about it a lot, you know, and it's something I think you were even cited um, about this as well. Um, And um, just how problematic it is that over time, the court keeps expanding the use of common law police powers and finding new ways to introduce new police powers uh, rather than to um, give parliament that ability to do that the courts create the powers Um, and I mean I was convinced when I read Vanessa's uh, papers on this and it's just something that I hadn't really given that much thought to as a criminal lawyer and I was like wow I can't believe I hadn't really thought too deeply about this because I'm sort of busy looking at my own particular case and what are you going to do in a criminal trial that involves a common law police power, are you going to say like, well, by the way, I have this academic article I'd like to refer to you like, no, these are common law powers, your OCJ trial judge isn't going to think, give it too much thought either. You know what I mean? Unless the crown's is trying to introduce a new common law police power, like that's what you're going to do. But I think I was, you know, it's it sort of expands, expands your horizons in terms of being able to uh read what academics are writing on criminal law. And there's just so many. Like I, I limit myself to U of O um uh law professors that focus on criminal law for the most part. Vanessa and, and some of her colleagues that are doing great work and I and I read what I can, uh, not a lot, but what I can. And I'm I'm always just interested because this is my field, you know? Um, but there's a lot out there for you to review. I just mean, find it you're, fascinating. You're not
2: interested in my most recent paper on the separation of powers because it's not in your field?
0: <laughs> no, but you know what? Leo makes a good point because I feel like there is, other than at the Supreme Court, possibly the appeal courts, there is a significant disconnect between like academic... Yeah writing and our everyday life it's like it's not like we we don't get updates or you know papers yeah, sent that's to right. us yeah. regularly yeah to turn well, our who mind has to things
2: time i think that's the other thing right like you know how are you going to sift through i mean this is one of the other things is that there's just been an explosion of legal scholarship right like there's more papers being produced in more journals like how are you going to sift through as a practitioner everything that's being produced and figure out what's worth reading what's going to be helpful I think it's really hard to to know where to start sometimes
1: I'll let you know when the next Vanessa McDonnell article <laughs> drops on Hein online <laughs> hot off the press mark
2: uh, he's always my number one acknowledgement
1: <laughs> actually I got a question for by a judge down in Cornwall about this a few years ago. He's like, what? You you showed up in a footnote in Professor Vanessa McDonnell's uh, article on this or that or the other. And I was like, no, your honor, uh, she's my spouse. I, I proofread the paper. She I added get that. To <laughs> I story. added that behind their back. <laughs> the editor missed
0: it. <laughs> <laughs> Vanessa What lawyer do you feel privileged to have seen litigate before the end of their career? Or alternatively, what lawyer do you wish you had an opportunity to observe before they retired?
2: Maybe this is going to seem like the obvious answer. Um, But so the year that I was clerking at the Supreme Court, I had a lot of time to just watch lawyers, right? The clerks sit in the courtroom and watch the appeals. And um, Marie Hennon, I think, was, you know, we saw a lot of lawyers come through the court um, over the course of a year. It was surprising. There were some big names who I will not name that were disappointing, I think, not what I was expecting. Um, But she definitely lived up to the hype. She just had this, you know, like, calm, collected, persuasive way of, of addressing the court. Um, I think she was, you know, she was a model of, of advocacy then, and that would have been 2007.
0: So I just want to follow up with a question to you, because of your experience at the Supreme Court. I mean, obviously, that's a that's a great answer in terms of somebody you had the opportunity to see. But of the judges that were there when you were there, mm-hmm. was there anybody in that bench that you would have said, oh, I would have really liked to see uh, how they litigated in terms of any of your experience with any of them?
2: You know, like the truth is like so many of them. Um, like at the time I was there, there were a lot of great legal minds um Justice Sharon who I who I clerked with um Justice Binney Justice LaBelle Justice Fish um Chief Justice McLaughlin like I I think you know it was a very strong bench and uh I mean Binney always like the way he wrote um he just had this way of um Yeah, I think he was incredibly persuasive and as a writer, as a judge, I think he probably would have been like incredibly persuasive um, as an advocate as well. But, you know, it's actually hard to choose like there at that moment, there were a lot of just terrific judges who undoubtedly would have also been terrific lawyers, whether or not you sort of agreed with them on the substance of their decisions at the court as advocates. As like legal minds, I think many of them were really impressive.
0: Leo, same question: What lawyer do you feel privileged to have seen litigate before the end of their career, or alternatively, Matt Weber? Oh, there you go. Okay, go ahead. Say that Um, again, because I might have cut you off.
1: Sorry, yeah, Justice Matt Weber. He's um, I uh, I worked with him. I worked for him. I articled for him. He was appointed in. I want to say 2014 or somewhere thereabouts um, to the OCJ. And I think people think he's an excellent judge. And I mean, those who say that should have seen him as a, as a trial lawyer because he was a phenomenal trial lawyer. And I was privileged to learn from him and to benefit from his uh, generosity uh, in terms of his mentorship. I don't think I'll ever live up to his example, or uh, not, in, not only in terms of his advocacy and his out-of-court lawyering skills, um, as well as in court, but also just his sheer generosity uh, in terms of mentorship. He was a uh,
2: he was a, a real a singular mentor, I would say.
1: Yeah, um, and when he was appointed, I remember now Justice Phil Campbell, then just Phil Campbell, um, introduced him and talked about. Um, Justice Weber um, as a the best out of court lawyer that he'd ever met um, and I got to see him more out of court than in court I and it, and and funnily enough I don't have that many memories of him in court but I saw him up late so many nights and I was sort of like a fellow night hawk like him and that's kind of why we I think in many ways we ended up clicking and then he ended up having me junior on a lot of files, including on a security certificate case that went up to the Supreme court twice. And I went with him and uh, you know, I, it always amazed me that he would be up working on his like very serious cases. He did a lot of homicide work and I was, you know, first or second year lawyer and I'd have some, you know, Mickey Mouse type, case and uh I would just feel free to go into his office and he would like bust the file open. And, you know, he would just start dropping gems on me in terms of like lines of cross, cross examination. He was very much like this kind of thinker that would just speak out loud and he would just start speaking the cross. And I was just like hurrying to like write it all down and trying to get the right order of words. And obviously like imitation isn't the way you go, but you're trying to figure out what he's doing to, structure his cross or his argument and i just benefited so much from that exposure and i was always amazed at how you know uh he didn't always run winners he was he was always doing really serious cases but he you know always treated the clients with respect and um made sure that their dignity was upheld and he was like just such a class act um in court and with the client, and he was always, always the person in the courtroom that you were watching. He always commanded uh, the room. So uh, he's the best I've ever seen, um, and probably ever will see.
0: Leo Rusomano and Vanessa McDonnell. I can't thank you enough for taking the time to come to the law Garage and share your experience with our listeners. Continuing legal education can take various forms. And I believe that there is something to gain just from talking to our colleagues. Before we leave, is there anything either of you would like to plug? I got a shaked head from Vanessa.
1: Do we have a plug? Uh, I'd like to plug Vanessa's public law center at the University of Ottawa. Sure. She co-chairs.
2: I'd like to plug uh, Leo's um, forthcoming appearance at the open mic night on Main <laughs> Street in Ottawa. Uh, at the happy goat.
1: <laughs> I'm still working on a set list. I'm still working on a set list.
0: All right. That's great, guys. Thanks for coming to the garage today.
1: Thanks, Thanks Marco. Marco.
0: Thank you for listening to the Law Garage podcast. If you're new to the podcast, please check out our back catalog and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the Law Garage. Our production crew includes executive producer Jason Cooper and associate producers Christina Stau, Remy Sansawal, and Matthew Takamatsu. The La Garage is a J Mike podcast production.